0: From New York, this is Democracy Now. Water temperatures off the coast of Florida are hitting some of the highest levels on record, creating a dire situation for the coral reefs. We are in Phoenix, Arizona, talking about the scorching heat. Now, it's not just here in Arizona, but we're outside of Valleywise Hospital, where they're talking about influx in patients suffering from all kinds of heat-related illnesses. We're talking about heat stroke. We're talking about heat exhaustion, as well as third-degree burns. Temperature records are continuing to be smashed across Asia, Europe and the United States, where over 100 million people remained under extreme heat advisories. We'll go to Texas to speak with Jeff Goodell, Rolling Stone reporter, author of the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Then, towards a new era for human rights, we are highlights from the panel I moderated in Venice, Italy, this weekend, marking the seventy-fifth anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I spoke with Volker Turk, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights.
1: Our position is very clear. I mean, cluster bombs are should be prohibited.
0: Will. We'll also hear from former Swedish Foreign Minister Margot Wallström on her opposition to cluster bombs and Sweden's historic 2014 decision to recognize the state of Palestine.
2: We made it clear that we had no interest in in making Israel our enemy. Uh, We wanted to continue to work with Israel for a two-state solution, which is the decision and the position of the European Union.
0: All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Suffocating heat is gripping three continents as the summer's record-breaking temperatures continue to scorch large swaths of the United States, Asia and Europe. 100 million U.S. residents remained under extreme heat advisories with dangerous conditions forecast this week in the south, the southwest, and south Florida. In Arizona, an unrelenting heat wave's on track to break the previous record of 18 straight days of 110 degrees-plus highs in Phoenix. That's Fahrenheit. Some of the most at-risk include people who work outdoors, like construction workers, as well as unhoused people.
3: I've been here for 12 years, and I haven't seen nothing like it. It's hot. I fell asleep on some con- hot
0: concrete,
3: and my whole left side got 30-degree burns on them. You know, um, so that's a that's an eye-opener.
0: Europe could record its hottest day ever on the Italian islands of Sicily and Sardinia. Over the weekend, Italian authorities issued an extreme health risk in 16 cities, including Rome and Florence. Italians flocked to lakes and seasides in an attempt to cool down.
3: This is not normal.
1: I don't remember such intense heat, especially at this time of year.
0: In northern Syria, displaced people describe the conditions at camps as akin to living in an oven. Children and elderly people are some of the most vulnerable, have scarce options for relief amidst 108-degree Fahrenheit heat. Meanwhile, China has just recorded its highest known temperature as the thermometer hit 126 degrees Fahrenheit, smashing the previous record by three degrees In South Korea, at least 40 people have died after days of torrential downpours and flooding. Twelve people were killed when 16 vehicles, including a bus, got trapped and inundated in a tunnel in Cheongju after a river levee collapsed. Grief-stricken locals called out the response of authorities to the disaster.
4: It feels like it could have happened to me. I feel like I've died. Authorities should have restricted access to the tunnel in advance. The
3: response was insufficient.
0: South Korean President Yoon suk yeol who also placed blame on authorities, called for better plans to deal with weather-related disasters which are becoming commonplace due to the climate crisis. At least 100 people have died in India this month as the monsoon continues to wreak havoc with entire towns swamped while flooding washes away vehicles, bridges and roads. Delhi has received over 90 percent more rainfall than is considered normal during the monsoon. But the worst flooding has been experienced in the Himalayan region of Himachal Pradesh, where new construction to accommodate tourists has worsened landslides and flooding. This is a young girl whose former school was
2: swept away. I used to study in this school, and I felt really bad when the school building was washed away. The studies of children who are from far-off places are also suffering. I feel really sad that the children are hit by this loss. Our memories are also washed away with this school.
0: Here in the U.S., parts of the Northeast were pummeled with more rain over the weekend in the Philadelphia suburbs of Bucks County. At least five people died after they were caught in flash flooding while in their car. At least 1,400 flights were canceled in the Northeast as of Sunday night. Meanwhile, thick smoke from hundreds of Canadian wildfires triggered air quality alerts across the Midwest, with Chicago, Minneapolis and Milwaukee reporting unhealthy levels of air pollution. There are also warnings put out by the New York governor across the state. In the Canary Islands, Spanish authorities have evacuated more than 4,000 people from the island of La Palma as firefighters battle out-of-control wildfires. We'll have more on the global heat wave, extreme weather, and the climate crisis after headlines with Rolling Stones reporter Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Russia says it's terminating the Black Sea grain deal, which expires today. The deal is allowed for the safe export of food and fertilizer from Ukrainian ports and was seen as essential in combating global food insecurity. Today's announcement from Moscow came hours after the bridge connecting Crimea to Russia was shut down following early morning explosions, which killed two people and injured a child, according to Russian officials. Ukraine did not take explicit responsibility, though Ukrainian officials told several media outlets their forces carried out the attack on the battlefield. Ukraine says it's gradually regaining control of more territory amidst reports of intense fighting along the eastern front. The US says it will allow European countries to train Ukrainian fighters on US-made F-16 fighter jets. Meanwhile, Russia's vowed to respond in kind if Ukraine deploys cluster bombs provided by the United States. This is Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu.
1: I want to mark that Russia has cluster bombs for all occasions. They are
0: more effective than American and more widely varied. Russia, Ukraine and the U.S. are not signatories to an international treaty banning the use of cluster bombs. We'll have more on cluster bombs later in the broadcast, when I speak to U.N. human rights chief Volker Turk and the former Swedish foreign minister Margot Wallström. Both oppose the use of cluster bombs. President Vladimir Putin said he plans to go ahead with a trip to South Africa next month to attend the BRICS summit, despite a warrant for his arrest issued by the International Criminal Court. As a member of the ICC, South Africa would be obligated to arrest President Putin. UNICEF said Friday at least 289 migrant children drowned while trying to reach Europe so far this year, around twice as many as in the first six months of 2022. Over 11,000 children made the treacherous journey across the Mediterranean since the start of the year, according to the U.N. agency. Many of them were either unaccompanied or separated from family. A UNICEF official called for better protections for young asylum seekers lamenting, quote, hundreds of girls and boys are drowning in the world's inaction. Libyan border guards have apprehended at least 80 exhausted and dehydrated migrants after they were rounded up by authorities in neighboring Tunisia and abandoned in the desert without food, water or shelter. The group is among hundreds of black African asylum seekers forcibly expelled from the city of Sfax in Tunisia's heavily militarized border with Libya. Refugees have faced abuse from authorities on both sides of the border with accounts of rape and sexual assault. On Sunday, Tunisia's government signed a strategic partnership with the European Union, pledging to crack down on migrants attempting to cross the Mediterranean to seek asylum in Europe. The agreement comes after the European Commission said it was considering an aid package for Tunisia worth over $1 billion. In Mexico, authorities apprehended over 500 asylum seekers this weekend in the state of Veracruz as the Mexican government intensifies its crackdown on migrants attempting to reach the U.S. border. More than 200 people, including children, were found in an abandoned trailer, many of them with symptoms of severe dehydration. At least six people were arrested for their role in transporting the hundreds of migrants who were mostly from Central America and Cuba. Stricter immigration policies in Mexico and the U.S., have forced asylum seekers to rely on smugglers and take on deadly routes to reach the United States. In Mexico, a journalist was shot dead Saturday in the state of Guerrero. Nelson Matus was the director of a local news outlet that reported worsening violence in the region. Matus was gunned down while he sat in his car in the parking lot of a store in the city of Acapulco. He had survived two other assassination attempts, including one in 2019. Iran's morality police have resumed patrolling the streets for the first time since the death of 22-year-old Mas Amini in its custody in September. The morality police had largely been pulled back after Amini's death, which triggered massive nationwide protests. The move comes as Iranian authorities are escalating efforts to arrest women who are deemed in violation of the strict headscarf dress code. This is an Iranian student in Tehran. Do you think the morality police can prevent women from not wearing a hijab? They cannot impose it like before. The number of people who do not obey is too high now. They cannot handle all of us. The last thing they can do is use violence and force against us. Back in the United States, the Justice Department has opened an investigation into conditions at Atlanta-area jails following the death of another prisoner. Fulton County officials say 19-year-old Noni Batiste Kosoko was found unresponsive in her cell in the Atlanta City Detention Center last Tuesday. She was arrested on misdemeanor warrant and held without bond. This follows the death last year of 35-year-old LaShawn Thompson, a black man who was being held in the Fulton County Jail's psychiatric wing, where his Family says he was eaten alive by insects and bedbugs in his cell. Assistant U.S. Attorney General Christian Clark says the probe will look into reports of deplorable conditions in Fulton County jails, lack of access to medical and mental health care, and the use of excessive force by staff. In Washington, the House of Representatives approved a record-shattering military budget of $886 billion for the coming fiscal year. Lawmakers approved the National Defense Authorization Act Friday by a vote of 219 to 210, with all but four Democrats opposed. The legislation appears doomed in the Democratic-controlled Senate after Republicans included amendments barring the Pentagon from reimbursing the expenses of personnel who travel out of state to obtain an abortion. This is Democratic Congressmember. Greg Stanton of Arizona.
2: Today, nearly half of service women no longer have access to abortion care. Many live hundreds of miles from the nearest provider. Access to abortion should not depend on where someone lives or where they are stationed. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin rightly noted that the Dobbs decision would, quote, would interfere with the U.S. military's ability to recruit, retain, and maintain the readiness of a highly qualified force.
0: Other amendments added by Republicans bar the Pentagon from paying for gender-affirming medical care and hormone therapy for transgender people and ban the display of LGBTQIA pride flags at military bases. House Republicans refused to allow a vote on an amendment by Democratic Congress members Mark Pocan and Barbara Lee that would have slashed $100 billion from the military budget. And the Education Department said Friday it's canceling $39 billion in federal student debt for over 800,000 borrowers. The plan will benefit those enrolled in income-driven repayment plans who would or should have qualified for relief after making monthly payments for 20 to 25 years, but did not because of oversight errors or shortcuts taken by loan servicers. The move, which has been in the works for at least the past year, comes two weeks after the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's student debt plan that would have eliminated $400 billion in student loans for some 40 million people. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. We'll speak with Rolling Stone reporter Jeff Goodell about his new book.
3: Hello, darkness my own. of silence, in restless dreams I walked alone, in narrow streets of cobbled and stone. neath the halo of a street lamp. I turn my color to
0: The Sound of Silence, version by Disturbed. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the suffocating heat gripping three continents as the summer's record-breaking temperatures continue to scorch large swaths of the United States, Europe and Asia. China just saw its highest temperature in recorded history, topping 126 degrees Fahrenheit, smashing the previous record by three degrees. In northern Syria, displaced people described the conditions at camps as akin to living in an oven, with children and the elderly facing few options for relief from 108-degree heat. Meanwhile, a third of people in the United States face excessive heat warnings or advisories this weekend, and Europe could record its hottest day ever this week. Italian authorities issued an extreme health risk in 16 cities as extreme heat dominated news reports worldwide. As you can see, there are lots of tourists here in Italy, and some of them have collapsed in the last few days because of heat strokes. And that includes a British tourist who passed out in front of the Colosseum.
4: In Spain, thermal imaging resembles the sun as ground temperatures reach a blistering 140 degrees. Forest fires ripped through the Spanish island of La Palma, destroying homes and displacing Hundreds, More than a 1,000 miles away, the heat fans the flames in
0: Croatia as well. Water temperatures off the coast of Florida are hitting some of the highest levels on record, creating a dire situation for the coral reefs. Well, we are in Phoenix, Arizona, talking about the scorching heat. Now, it's not just here in Arizona, but we're outside of Valleywise Hospital where they're talking about an influx in patients suffering from all kinds of heat-related illnesses. We're talking about heat stroke. We're talking about heat exhaustion as well as third degree The heat wave in Arizona is on track to break the previous record of 18 straight days of temperature surpassing 110 degrees Fahrenheit in Phoenix. Extreme heat now kills more people in the United States than any other extreme weather. Some of those most at risk include people who work outdoors, as well as unhoused people. All this comes as a U.N. climate change report found the Earth could pass a dangerous temperature threshold in the next decade that could make climate disasters so extreme we will not be able to adapt unless urgent action is taken to reduce carbon emissions. For more, we're joined by longtime climate reporter Jeff Goodell whose new book is just out, titled The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. He says he decided to write it after he walked for 10 blocks in Phoenix on a 115-degree Fahrenheit day and nearly passed out, making him realize he'd radically underestimated the dangers of extreme heat. Jeff Goodell has covered the climate crisis for over 20 years at Rolling Stone magazine. His guest essay in The New York Times is headlined in Texas, Dead Fish and Red-Faced Desperation are Signs of Things to Come. Jeff, welcome to Democracy Now! Congratulations on your new book. It's so important. You describe heat as a, quote, first-order threat that drives all other impacts of the climate crisis. Explain. Explain.
4: Well, you know, we're seeing these extreme heat uh, events right now that you just described um, in your intro, which is drawing everyone's attention. and But it's really important to, to grasp that as we burn fossil fuels and loading the atmosphere with CO2, we are, you know, um, the temperature, we're rising, raising the temperature of the Earth, which is driving all of these other uh, climate impacts that you have described and that we talk about when we talk about climate change like sea level rise like drought like the wildfires that have been burning in Canada heat is the primary driver for this um, climate transformation that we're undergoing right now it is it is this invisible force that is changing our world
0: So, talk about your experiences of the heat yourself from Phoenix to Texas. You write in your guest essay in the New York Times, um, in Texas, dead fish and red-faced desperation are signs of things to come. You can argue that Texas has done this to itself. The planet is getting hotter because of the burning of fossil fuels. This is a simple truth as clear as the moon in the night sky. No state has profited more from fossil fuels. Than Texas. Elaborate on this, and don't speak in sound bites. Give us the whole meal, <laughs> uh,
4: happily. Um, so, I moved to Texas um, uh, four or five years ago, um, and I had lived in the Northeast, and it was really uh, eye-opening moving here um, because this Texas really is the belly of the beast when it comes to both the energy transformation and. Um, the impacts of climate change. Um, you know, this is a state that was, you know, built around fossil fuels. There's tremendous uh, riches here as a result of our dependence upon fossil fuels. There's tremendous sort of uh, economic and cultural inertia around oil and gas uh, in this state, and you feel it everywhere you go here. Um, but it's also the state where this transformation towards clean energy is happening very quickly. Uh, we had, a, you know, an extreme. Uh, heat dome in the last couple of weeks here. There was a lot of concern about the grid going down, and um, the grid was okay. And largely because of 25% of the power that was going onto the grid during this um, extreme heat wave was from solar power, which performs very well in uh, hot weather um, and is not only uh, more reliable, but cheaper. And so we have these... um, Texas, even Texas, is making this sort of transformation to, um, to a, a cleaner grid. The problem, of course, is it is not happening fast enough. And in Texas, you feel the changing of our climate in a very dramatic way. You know, there's the risks of sea level rise in, in Houston. Uh, there's a $30 billion Ike dike that's beginning to be constructed to protect the petrochemical industry and the um, Houston shipping channel there. There's the heat waves that we've been suffering through in the last few weeks. There's, you know, water shortages as part of my reporting. I was in the Rio Grande Valley, one of the most um, productive agricultural regions in the country. And, you know, the Rio Grande is drawing to a trickle there. And so, you know, there's these cascading consequences here where um, you're feeling the, the world changing beneath our feet. And um, yet the kind of politics and culture of this place, um, are lagging far behind those changes.
0: Jeff, we've been talking about this um, uh, for—well, since it was enacted, but as the deadly heat wave grips Texas, where you are, Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill eliminating mandatory water breaks for construction workers. I want to play a clip of Ana Gonzalez, the Texas AFL-CIO deputy director of policy and politics. Texas is the deadliest state when it comes to construction. One worker dies every three days in our state. In fact, um, more more workers die of heat-related illnesses in our state than any other state. This is the mayor of the Petro Metro, that's Houston, Sylvester Turner, who warned the bill would have devastating consequences for people working outdoors.
3: House Bill, House Bill 2127 is allowed to stand and, and it prevents municipal units of government from saying to employers that under extreme weather conditions like heat uh, that you can't be mandated to provide water breaks then can you imagine the number of workers who are out there in the heat Uh, uh, construction workers, people working on uh, buildings, developments, you name it, uh, that are going to face uh, heat strokes. Some people will even possibly lose their lives because they're operating, working in very dangerous uh, conditions. Uh, This bill is totally insensitive. It goes contrary uh, to the health and well-being and welfare of workers. Who are out there doing, uh, working on conditions that many, if not most folk, would dare not work under.
0: I mean, that's the Houston Mayor Turner. Uh, Jeff, he was talking about the bill, hoping it wouldn't be passed. It has been passed and is going to soon go into effect.
4: Yeah, it is. And, And, you know, Mayor Turner called it insensitive, and I would say that's a gross understatement. It's barbaric. I mean, I live here. I see what it's like working outside. I see these workers um, working, building, you know, the buildings that are going up here in Austin. Austin's a a, a boom town, and uh, there's construction everywhere. And, you know, it's hard for me during these heat waves to walk to my mailbox to check the mail. The idea that, you know, you're working on a rooftop or laying asphalt outside in this heat, and and it's, you know, you're forbidden from taking water and shade breaks, I mean, it's just like back to, you know, kind of Sinclair Lewis's The Jungle. I mean, I don't know how to explain this other than to talk about, you know, a kind of, you know, there's a kind of racism to this. You know, the, the many of the workers here that are keeping the state going are Mexican. Um, they're coming across the border. They're working incredibly, work incredibly hard. Um, you know, it's just, you know, a, a kind of... Um, politics that's um, rising here in Texas, that I have no uh, kind of good moral explanation for how this can be justified in any way. And in my book, I write about the death of, a, of an agricultural worker named Sebastian Perez, not in Texas, but in Oregon, uh, who died in the fields um, because he was afraid that if he took a water break and a shade break, he would lose his job. And so this kind of, um, this this law that the, the governor um, this legislation that the governor has signed, is going to directly result in the deaths of many Texans.
0: In your new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, uh, Jeff Goodell, you write about what happens to our bodies as the heat rises above 107 degrees Fahrenheit. You say, as the heat rises, the proteins unfold and the bonds that keep the structures together break— At the most fundamental level, your body unravels. Your insides melt and disintegrate. You're hemorrhaging everywhere. Take it from there, Jeff.
4: Well, that's sort of the end. Um, uh, To begin, um, you know, our bodies are finely tuned machines that that work in a very narrow temperature range all of us understand that intuitively if you have a temperature of 100 degrees you know something's going on in your body if you have a temperature of 101 or 102 you're calling the doctor if you have a temperature of 105 you're going to the hospital we all know this in our lives um but we don't understand the risks of that you know in an outdoor environment in and in these kinds of extreme heat events what happens when your body gets hot is we only have one mechanism to cool down, and that is sweat, as, as, as we all know. When it gets hot, our heart starts pumping faster, and it's pushing the blood away from our internal organs and away from our brains, which is one of the reasons why you get kind of dizzy or hallucinogenic or lightheaded when, when you're um, suffering from extreme heat. And as it pushes the blood um, away from the internal organs towards our skin to cool off through sweating, it puts enormous strain on a heart. And so a lot of people who are the most vulnerable to heat are people who have heart conditions, circulatory issues, taking medications that are related to that. And your body is in this sort of desperate attempt to dissipate this heat. And when you're an outdoor worker, when you are in an environment that your body just can't sweat enough, or either you, because you're not drinking enough water and you loses the ability to sweat, or you just simply can't kind of dump enough heat out of your body to keep your internal body temperature from rising above 101, 102, 103, 104, 105, then the things start happening that you described, which is you're, you're literally the membranes of your cells begin to melt the proteins that control the functions of those cellular structures begin to unfold. And your body look kind of literally melts from the inside. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a horrible uh, uh, way to go. And um, it's something, you know, most people who die of heat stroke um, don't get that far. It's usually a heart attack or something like that that is um, the cause of death. But it's also one reason why heat mortality is is dramatically underestimated in, in our uh, accounting of it. Because unlike a knife or a gunshot, there is no kind of heat wound uh, when someone dies from he- extreme heat. So a lot of people die of heart attacks or c- other circulatory problems, and they're never diagnosed as heat deaths. And so these sort of mortality numbers that you were citing in the, in the opening and that I cited in my book are widely understood to be grossly underestimated.
0: New York Times op-ed, if there's one thing we should understand about the risks of extreme heat, it's this. All living things, from humans to hummingbirds, share one simple fate. If the temperature they're used to, what scientists sometimes call their Goldilocks zone, rises too far, too fast, they die. Talk about the Goldilocks zone and also talk about why you don't like the term global warming, Jeff.
4: Yeah, the Goldilocks zone is a phrase that scientists use when they're uh, who are looking for life on other planets. What they're looking for is planets that are not too cold, so that the so that what they're looking for is liquid water. And if the planets are too cold, the water is ice. If it's too hot, the water is vaporized and it's, it's gone. So they're looking for this sort of medium temperature planets. This what they call the Goldilocks zone, and it. I use it in my book because all life on our planet has evolved under this relatively stable climate. Um, just as we are um, you know, able to maintain our steady temperature in this sort of given climate zone that we've evolved into, so is it true with, with you know pine trees and lizards and polar bears and sharks in the ocean. and every, All living things have this sort of thermal range that we can deal with. And one of the profound things that's happening as we heat up our planet is we're moving out of that Goldilocks zone, not just for us as humans, but for all living creatures. And so um, that has profound implications in, in the sort of distribution of life on our planet. It means that people are going to move. Animals are going to move. Plants are going to move. They need to migrate to cooler places. And if they can't migrate to cooler places, they die. And it's a very simple truth, and it's one that has enormous consequences for politics. Uh, you talked about it in your intro about um, you know, the refugees moving from uh, various countries and the political consequences of that. We're going to see more and more of that. We're going to see more and more changes in disease patterns as um, animals carrying various microbes move into new places. You know A simple example of this is uh, mosquitoes. Uh, that are very sensitive to temperature, moving into um, hotter places, carrying diseases like dengue and Zika and malaria with them. Um, we're seeing this in the you know drying out of um, uh, forests that are causing these bigger and hotter wildfires that are causing the smoke that is you know inundated the East Coast in recent weeks. Um, you know, this changes in this sort of Goldilocks zone are. Uh, profoundly rearranging life on our planet, and that 's why heat is such an important um, force to understand, both in the way that it impacts our body but also in the way it impacts the sort of dynamics of life on our planet.
0: Have you been shocked by how fast this has happened, and what do you think needs to happen
4: uh, yeah i think I think anybody who 's been watching this. Um covering talking about climate um, journalists like myself and scientists who've been looking at this for a long time are um, both shocked and shocked by two things. one by the how rapid the changes are that we're seeing given the kind of levels of CO2 that we're at and and also by the predictability of it in a certain way. I mean, you know, we've known you know, ExxonMobil has known for a very long time, that as we burn fossil fuels and dump CO2 into the atmosphere, the, tem- the temperature of the planet is going to rise. And it's broadly, you know, um, those predictions have held uh, been very accurate and held true, and we've known for decades. And the fact that we've done essentially nothing to um, stop that rise is, you know, terribly um, disappointing and predictable and surprising, you know, at the same time. And what do we need to do? We need to stop burning fossil fuels because that is what's driving the temperature change on the planet. And we also have to think differently about the risks that we are running. We have to understand something like heat. I think of my book as a sort of survival guide for the 21st century. We have to understand the risks of extreme heat and these extreme events, what to do, how to handle it, Um, who's vulnerable, who's not, how to better address that, how to democratize air conditioning, how to build cities in a different way that incorporates shade, um, how to uh, um, address events like extreme heat for the most vulnerable communities, cooling centers, things like that. We We have not at all come close to grasping the scale and scope of the crisis we're facing. And that is not alarmist. That is just kind of the straightforward reality of where we are. And I'm very hopeful.
0: We have 10 seconds. I'm
4: Okay. I'm very hopeful that we can use this transformation to build a better and cleaner and more healthy world, but we need to really grasp what we're doing.
0: Jeff Goodell's new book is called, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Up next, I'm just back from Venice, Italy, where I spoke to Volker Turk, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and the former Swedish Foreign Minister Margot Wallström about cluster bombs, Palestine, Sudan, and more. Back in
3: 30 seconds.
0: Children's Rights by Mickey Healy. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Towards a New Era for Human Rights. That was the name of a two day conference held this weekend. On Friday night, it was held at the historic UNESCO building in Venice, Italy. The conference was organized by the Global Campus of Human Rights and Right Livelihood to mark the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This year also marks the 40th anniversary of the historic World Conference on Human Rights, which was held in Vienna in 1993. On Friday, I moderated a panel on the global state of human rights, looking at the recent U.S. decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine, looking at the war in Sudan, as well as Palestine, the role of civil society in elevating human rights issues and the role of the media. Speakers on the panel include Volker Turk, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Eamon Gilmore, the European Union Special Representative for Human Rights, and the former, former Swedish Foreign Minister, Margot Wallström. She was also the former Deputy Prime minister of Sweden, the former head of Sweden's Social Democratic Party, and the former U.N. Special Representative on Sexual Violence and Conflict. While she was foreign minister in 2014, Sweden became the first member of the European Union to recognize the state of Palestine. I asked her about how Sweden made that
2: decision that could not have come as a surprise. We had that my party has fought for this for a very long time has promised this in our sort of programs and and all of that so uh, it was part of our sort of uh, uh, declaration uh, when we took office as as a new government. And then of course yeah, things could have been um maybe phrased in a different way to give us a little bit more time if you look back at things that, that could have been done differently but the the main uh, issue uh, would not have come as, as a surprise to, to anybody but the response was of course to make us an example a bad example so that we would they would scare anybody else uh, from doing something similar from other countries from following our example I know this from f- for a fact how this worked, uh, for example, in the European Council. Um, so um, this was uh, what happened all the time that uh, the Israelis used us as a, as a scare, uh, as a scare, uh, so so to make sure that nobody else followed in the European Union. Um, and and it was a very very tough uh, decision. Uh, we made it clear that we had no interest in in making sort of Israel our enemy. Uh, We wanted to continue to work with Israel for a two-state solution, which is the decision and the position of the European Union. But of course, uh, this was uh, extremely tough, and I think that, uh, well, I have experienced this uh, throughout my my years as a foreign minister, that when you, uh, if you're courageous, as I see it, if you take a position, If you follow, if you are consistent, uh, you have to pay a price for it. That is absolutely, and you know, but without that, things would not move. We would not see uh, an advance for, for human rights. So somebody must take a first step uh, sometimes.
0: And related to this, and this could be uh, to you or to any of the people on the panel, is the issue of cluster bombs, the use of cluster bombs. Something the United States said last year a year ago is what distinguished Putin from that was that he was willing to use cluster bombs, and the shock of so many when President Biden said that they will send cluster bombs to Ukraine. I mean, talking about everything from human rights to the destruction to the environment, Um, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, well, this uh, this is very bad and very sad, and I really hope, well, one would hope that the Ukrainians would say that this is not sort of in our best interest either. Um, but on the other hand, they ask for everything they can can put their hands on right now because they want to win the war. But it is also very bad and very sad that the U.S. Uh, thinks that this is the best help they can give to, to Ukraine to send cluster bombs. I mean, I think there has to be a public opinion and there has to be a debate about this that, that takes it further. That's what
0: I'm hoping. Would anyone else like to weigh in on that? Um, Do you see this as a turning point um, where so many countries, more than 100 in the world, have signed on against the use of cluster bombs? Uh, and now one of those countries, the United States, along with Russia, along with Ukraine, none of them are, uh, decide that they're going to move forward on this, what this means for the direction of the world at this point. Here.
1: Well, I'd be very very plain on this Um, I don't think the United States should have made that decision I don't think that um, I don't think cluster bombs should be used uh, in Ukraine Uh, I think we um, as Margaret says it it is a a sad reality uh, that such huge amount of resources uh, are being deployed uh, to provide weaponry to Ukraine to enable them to prevail uh, against this war uh, of aggression. Uh, but I must say I was surprised and I don't agree with the uh, decision to provide cluster bombs to Ukraine.
0: That was Amon Gilmore, European Union so, Special Rep I'm for Fulker Human Tirk. Rights. This the is Volker
1: Turk. for Human Rights, and I was actually asked... This is
0: Volker Turk, the <laughs> UN High Commissioner <laughs> I mean, for Human Rights.
1: Look. No, I just want to say something about this because you asked. I was actually asked the question at the Human Rights Council two days ago during an interactive dialogue on Ukraine, and our position is very clear. I mean, cluster bombs are should be prohibited. They have an indiscriminate effect on civilian populations. Both Russia, Ukraine, US hasn't signed the, the treaty which is unfortunate, but that doesn't mean... But that doesn't mean... Sorry. sorry. Okay, does this work? No, I just... What I just mentioned, at the Human Rights Council, we had an interactive dialogue on Ukraine two days ago, and I got that question. What is the position of the UN in relation to cluster ammunition and the use of cluster bombs? And it's obvious that it has an indiscriminate effect on civilians. Unfortunately, the bomblets will stay for probably generations to come, so it, people will live with it. It is true that Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. have not signed the treaty, but that doesn't mean under human rights law that we couldn't argue against it. And it's clear, because any, any indiscriminate effect that ammunition has on civilians should not be used
3: have
0: you spoken to the US government about this president biden
1: we ha- well i don't speak to president biden but we have made it very clear publicly the secretary general as well not just us as from the from the human rights side
0: how do you see this war ending
1: i mean i think it is important to think about the day after and I was in Ukraine uh, in December, beginning of December. And, you know, I met a lot of civil society actors, human rights defenders, victims. And one thing that became very clear that the whole civil society is involved no longer in the typical work that you do on the human rights front, but they are all involved in the humanitarian response. So you see a shift away from the work that they did before, focusing on vulnerable people people with disabilities older people uh, institutionalized horrible institutionalized care arrangements for children the the, the, the corruption issues the, the lack of independence of the judiciary and all of the, the, those issues they are not fo- they can't focus on it now because obviously because of their national survival um, but i think it is very important that everyone who supports ukraine has to support ukraine of the future which means all of the type of issues rule of law independent judiciary support for the prosecutor general but in line with international standards and that's going to be a big big. so reconstruction cannot just be a logistical exercise it also has to be an exercise of it has to be guided inspired by human rights
0: are you hopeful?
1: I <laughs> hope springs eternal that's, otherwise we wouldn't do, would be able to do our work
0: I was just, um, uh, well, you just heard me talking to the former foreign minister of Sweden about Palestine and the position Sweden took early on. You also just took a position uh, demanding that Israel take its occupation uh, uh, uh that it has legal obligations as an occupying force in Palestine. Can you comment on that as the UN High Commissioner of Human Rights?
1: Well, obviously, it's a very complex situation. Um, And, I mean, my first speech to the Council in, in March, when there was a specific discussion on it, highlighted the fact that, you know, my office on the ground issues a report every couple of months on the situation, uh, describing what is happening. We make recommendations again and again and again. To both sides, by the way. And that's also important. And we miss a serious effort to look at these recommendations and to implement them. And that's really a problem and and we we need to find ways and means that both parties are able to have back channels, talk to each other, find ways to de-escalate, but what we see is is an escalation. We are in this, I call it the illogic of escalation, because it's not a logic, it's an illogic of escalation. So whoever has any influence needs to find ways and means to de-escalate, 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 and find a way to think again also about their future.
0: I mean, Israel is the occupying force. Palestine, though Israel isn't a signatory to the International Criminal Court, Palestine is. Do you think Israel should be brought before that court?
1: That's, I'm not, you know, the, I mean, of course, accountability is important. It starts at home. So if war crimes are committed, they need to be investigated. That's also one of the recommendations that we consistently make to, to the Israelis but also to the other side. They need to investigate. Sometimes it happens, but it doesn't happen with the seriousness that is required.
0: Um, let me just ask you, because you just came in. you just for that. Made a very... Travel in th- Europe. No, but you, I didn't mean you just that you were late. I meant that because you just came in, this is such an opportunity, but what's happening right now in Sudan um, you just made a major statement about and this mass grave that was discovered in Darfur. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, I, you know, I went... Sudan was the first country that I visited after I took office, within three weeks. And I met both Burhan and Hemeti, both the two warring men, <laughs> because they are men, they are warring parties, and we concentrate always on them, right? We talk about these two men that are, are waging a war against each other. Totally irresponsible. I had a lot of hope. I was so inspired by what I saw from the Sudanese population that I met. I mean, I met so many human rights defenders, the victims, I mean, young people, these resistance committees that were established. In fact, I was. it's incredible that despite the fact that there was a second coup in October 21, for a year with brute force, young people, women, and the population, in particular in Khartoum, resisted the onslaught of repression from the military. Because I think they have had enough of what happened during, during Bashir, al-Bashir's time, and they just wanted to get rid of it, right? And then you have these two men, when we were so close towards a civilian transition, to blow it up, to blow up the country. It has a lot to do with geopolitics I have to say because in the past certain things probably would have been much more difficult to achieve I mean they would have had, there would be more control over certain things now it's a free for all and they benefit we have US, China (laughs) West, Russia West, Global South so it's it's chaotic, the Security Council. I mean, when we had a special session on Sudan in the Human Rights Council, there was a group of states that said we shouldn't discuss Sudan in the Human Rights Council, which should, because we shouldn't discuss country mandates. Well, if there is a situation to be discussed, it's obviously any new situation that emerges. So it was really quite remarkable how We don't come back to the basic consensus that the world had in the the wake of the Second World War, after the cataclysmic events, with the adoption of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and we need to be striving and going back to the past in order to be able to deal with the future. And so, yes, when, when it comes to Sudan, a big issue was accountability, and transitional justice that wasn't coming in quickly enough. You saw Karim Khan the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court gave a speech to the Security Council yesterday and he will start investigations.
0: And what was found the mass grave in Darfur?
1: So we had interviewed people because we are no longer present in Darfur because it's it's impossible, but we had we have teams in Chad, who interviewed refugees who came over and that we could, uh, as a result, identify and do our typical methodological thing to identify what had actually happened. And yes, it was, I mean, the RSF and the militias and the Masalit are campaigning for, uh, I mean, there's ethnic cleansing taking place as we speak.
0: In all of the meetings that have been taking place in Egypt and Saudi Arabia around this, one of the issues that civil society keeps raising are where are they at the table? And they feel that we wouldn't even be at this point with Sudan if they were included. And then if you could comment on that, and then as we begin to wrap up this panel, for everyone, the role both of civil society, how important that is even in you doing your job, what becomes acceptable to say and what isn't, and the role of the media.
1: No, I, I mean, Margot, when you were in the position of Special Representative on sexual violence and conflict, I mean, one of the big achievements of the Security Council was Women, Peace and Security. You know this decision that when it comes to peace processes there needs to be a conscious effort to bring women on, onto the negotiating table to include them to, so that they are part of it we did we, every year we do an analysis of how many of the peace negotiations, I mean I don't know if you remember very early on when the Russians Ukrainians sat down beginning of March did you notice the, did you remember the picture on both sides, only men only men well, in both negotiating teams it was only men and I think it is so important because each and every conflict when it, we emerge from it when there is peace negotiated it's always the warring factions that discuss it it's not the whole of civil society I mean South Sudan is another example so we have all these different issues where there wasn't an inclusive participatory effort to bring everyone around the table to discuss these things it was always left to those who waged the war. And we really need to fight back on this. That's absolutely critical. And, it's, and, you know, Sudan is a good example. It was led by young people. It was led by women, very courageous women. It was led by, by those who just had enough of it.
0: Yeah, where are they now when it comes to the formal negotiations?
1: Well, there are no formal negotiations. I mean, to be honest, not very serious ones at the moment I don't think these two guys are serious about it they think that they can win on the battlefield and they will bring the country to the brink well it's already close to the brink so I don't know how deeper it can go
0: and the role of the media
1: well the well of course it is well if you look I'll just give you one example Um, if you look what I mean, it is so crucial that we have independent, serious media that report on these situations and that they bring them to the table of everywhere in the world. If I look at even mainstream media today, I'm very disappointed. I mean, just to give, and I know it's a sensitive thing to raise, but just look at what happened. We had, within a week, the sinking of the boat in Greece, and then the submarine with the Titanic. Just watch how much attention was paid to the submarine. I think it was almost minute by minute. And the, the probably 800 people that died horribly, that was maybe a day, maybe another news some sometime else. And if that had happened, if it had been a plane, if it had been, this would be what, four planes crashing? Can you imagine what this would have meant? So there is an interesting dimension to how media report about what I think is very selective.
0: At Democracy Now! we called it the Titanic disparity. Is that how you
1: called it? Yes. Exactly. I'm glad you think
2: about that, yes.
0: Well, on that note, we have to wrap up. And this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, are there any final words you'd like to offer?
1: we will have a continuation of our discussions tomorrow but I I think one thing that for me is so important that we and I sometimes feel it with politicians these days they forget about history or they don't really want to know much about history I don't know whether Margaret it was also your experience especially some of the younger generations history is sort of put somewhere else, sometimes it's not even known and we really need to know about it And we need to know what the genesis is of the type of achievements that we have had, also on the human rights side. And we should be so grateful for what the human rights movement has achieved over the last 100 years. Of course, actually, even in the 19th century with the labor movement. I mean, you have so many different movements, decolonization. I mean, you have all these movements. Well, it starts with some of the revolutions. And that actually gives me a lot of hope that the big issues of our time and of the future, we are able to do it again through the human rights lens. Because it brings us back to what unites us. It brings us back to what is a solution. It's not just the doom and gloom. It is a solution to problems. And it, yeah, and we just need to find a well, new era, right? We have to think about human rights for the new era. But it is human rights.
0: That's Volker Türk, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Amon Gilmore, the European Union Special Representative for Human Rights, and Margot Wallström the former Swedish foreign minister. She was also the former deputy prime minister of Sweden and the former head of Sweden's Social Democratic Party, as well as the former U.N. special representative on sexual violence and conflict. They were speaking this weekend at a conference I moderated in Venice, Italy, talking about a new era for human rights, the conference organized by the Global Campus of Human Rights and Right Livelihood to mark the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights As the conference ended, thousands of Venetians went out in boats. We joined them to celebrate the city's oldest holiday, marking the end of the 16th century plague, the pestilence that killed a third of Venice's population. There was a half-hour fireworks display as people celebrated. I'm Amy Goodman, back in New York. Thanks for joining us.